You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages that George Slavin presented during Moody Week at Go Lake Bible Conference 1978. George Slavin was a Bible teacher and expositor and former pastor of Highland Park Baptist Church in Southfield, Michigan. Now, here is George Slavin on Today in the Word radio. Father, it's, it's a delight to know you intimately, personally, a knowledge that continues to grow and we're ever amazed. We see thy hand everywhere. And the psalmist said, Lord, that thy name is near, thy wonderful works declare. In the singing of the bird, in the warmth of the sun, in the air we breathe with its perfect component parts. How great thou art. Now, Lord, we can't know thee apart from thy word and apart from thy spirit who is our teacher. Open thy word to us, that we may better know thee. In Christ's name, amen. Some basic things that we ought to know about every book. The early church, Acts 2.42, continued in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. And those apostles taught and wrote, sometimes for instruction, doctrinal teaching, sometimes the warn against heresy, And Colossians is quite an example of that. A lot of heresies that that book deals with. Sometimes to correct a situation or a problem. And when we open any book of the Bible, there are basic questions to ask. For example, who wrote the book? Secondly, to whom was the book written? Third, what was the purpose of the writing? What does the book say and what does it mean? The writer of this epistle known as 1 John is John the beloved disciple. For external evidence that he wrote it, the letter is credited to John by Polycarp and Arrhenius, Arrhenius and Origen. Internal evidence points to the vocabulary, the style, and content as being similar to the Gospel of John. And we're not interested in that possibly this morning, but there is evidence that John was the writer. Now, in the New Testament, there are 27 books Four of them are called Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's the book of Acts. There are 13 letters written by Paul. There's the book of Revelation. There are seven general epistles, general because they're not addressed to any particular church or person, and we name them here. James, 12 tribes scattered abroad, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Jude. The purpose of any writing is important. And it's interesting when you read books, sometimes the author is very frank and tells you why he writes the book. Sometimes you have to read through it where he begins more or less to preach to you his particular philosophy, tries to weave it into his book. John is very frank. He writes his gospel and says, now, Jesus did many more miracles than I record, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Christos or the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Well, that's the same kind of style that he uses in his epistle. He tells us why he writes it. Did you ever get letters or solicitations? And, uh, man, you know why they're writing to you. Well, John says, I write a letter and I have some reasons to write it. And first, and if you were a Bible student, <laughs> I don't have to tell you any, but some of us don't know, and I had to be told to, learn to write in your Bible 
Learn to mark your Bible. I worked in a shipyard for eight years, and I'll tell you, you don't use new blueprints. You mark them. And if you have a detail, AA, and it gives you the whole detail there in the bottom of the blueprint, AA means you're going to put that bracket in that way, but there are 32 brackets. You don't give the detail 32 times, you give it once, and then every time you see an AA, it means you put that there and you circle them in yellow. That's what you do with your Bible. You mark your Bible. And you want to have marked in your Bible this particular phrase, these things I write unto you, and then he gives the reason. And you mark it. So when somebody says, give me a message on 1 John, uh, you have it already marked in your Bible. You know, if you're a good cook, you know some recipes by heart. And if somebody says, oh, can you think of something? You don't say, where's my cookbook? You say, uh. Notice this. 1 John 1, 4. These things I write unto you that your joy may be, what? <laughs> oh, you know the old story about the meat truck that overturned and the birds that began to feast on it and oh, they gobbled and gobbled and gobbled and ate all that fresh meat, really kind of meat you have for lunch and finally sat there drowsy on an old plow handle was sitting there. And the farmer came and the wise old crow was watching his brother crow said, you're eating too much. And no, they didn't believe him. They gobbled till they were full. And the farmer raised his gun and they tried to fly away and uh, they could not. And of course the problem is don't ever try to fly off the handle when you're full of baloney. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what are you full of? <laughs> Baloney, mostly. Says the Lord to Job, Who is this that darkeneth counsel without knowledge? Do you ever find yourself talking about things you know nothing about? Well, we're full of that, but it's good to be full of joy. And you know many of the texts. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice evermore. Or James 1, count it all Joy, not if you fall into diverse testings, but when <laughs> you fall. Whoever plans the testing, whoever says today I think I'll have an accident, <laughs> when you least expect it, like this, or you, you reach down for a golf ball if you play golf, and as you reach, you can't get up again. <laughs> Count it all joy, brother. Oh, like this. But these things I write unto you that your joy may be full. We were at Keswick when I was first saved years ago in Jersey. And L.T. Legters was speaking. And he had a glass of water here. And as he picked it up, his arm bumped something and the water spilled. And everybody got, <gasps> he says, oh, don't worry. It's like us. He said, only what's in you comes out when you're bumped. You ever get bumped? How do you reply? Bless you, brother. <laughs> you know, usually go, oh. yeah, yeah. Full joy. Jesus for the joy. I don't think he applauded on the, on the cross. I don't think he said, Pray. I think there was a deep inner joy, not necessarily happiness, but that deep 
joy that's like the tide that you cannot always see on the surface, but underneath it's moving. Joy that leads them to do the Father's will. Not to enjoy Calvary, not to enjoy the spikes, but to enjoy the fact that I'm doing my Father's will and my meat is to do that. So you read the biographies of missionaries, the Adoniram Judsons, the William Careys, and for the joy that was there, not that they enjoyed the suffering, joy. But secondly, in order that there be no sin, these things I write unto you, 1 John 2, 1, that you sin not. Now, don't be shocked, but I do believe that God wants from us sinless perfection. You may not agree, but I believe that. I don't think God wants me to sin. And I can never justify it with the uh, cliche, well, no one's perfect. So watch, you sin. Or, uh, oh, I'm only a sinner saved by grace. Hey, he didn't, he didn't make you that. He saved you by grace and called you to be a saint. Is that true? And what's a saint? One who is absolutely separated unto God. Sin defined as a transgression of the law, hamartano, hamartia, means to miss the mark. It means you may even try to hit the mark. And you may say, there goes my, I'm going to hit that bullseye. Zoom, it goes. And it's four foot. You say, hey, hamartia, you missed it. So some dear brother says, give me the bow. And he takes aim, draws it, lets it go, and it's one-eighth of an inch from the bullseye. And the judge says, hammer to you. What happened? You missed too. But I was closer. You missed. To me, sin is like jumping for a boat that's leaving the, the dock. And as it draws away, it's 10 foot, and you jump, boy, you jump. And as you do, you trip, and you go two feet. Bloop, 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 bloop. And the Olympic athlete grins at you and he jumps. And as it gets there, it's 10 foot six and he jumps 10 foot five. Guess where he goes? Bloop, 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 bloop. He's in the bottom too. How many have sinned? All have sinned. But sin goes deeper than that. To know to do good and do it not is sin. Anything that's not of faith is sin. Hey, but these things I write unto you that you do not sin. God never condones sin. Never. Never. Sin is the ideal, and ideals are absolutes. It's like marriage. Marriage, monogamous marriage, one man and one woman, is the ideal. Now, in grace, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Thank God for that. If he didn't put that in there, I'm done. Right? Why does he write the book? In order that you do not sin. Third, in order that they may understand God's commandment. 1 John 2, 7. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. A new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light shineth. He that saith he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness. He that loves his brother abides in the light. It's not anything new that God is love. It's not anything new that God loves man. He loved Jacob. It's not anything new that man can love God. 
It's not anything new that man can love man. But the new part of the commandment is a new dimension. It's God not just loving a Jacob or a Jew. It's so loving the world that he made provision for that world in Jesus Christ. Hey, I write this to you that you may know that if you have no love, you walk in darkness. And love is identified with light. It's not lust. It's not any kind of love. It's love that's identified with Christ, who is light. Love, as you know, is a a continuous desire for oneness. C.S. Lewis says there are four degrees of love identified with oneness. That is, the love of uh, things, like music. Oh, oh, I love music. That's abstract. What kind of music? And the person that loves classical music, when they hear it, they stop saying, oh, isn't that beautiful? Brahms, lullaby, Bach. And the guy that loves rock, he does like, he wants to be one with that, you know. Or mountain music. (laughs) (laughs) Then there's a love of uh, friends. You say, I love everybody in my church, but hey, Joe. You say, hey, you don't go say, oh, well, Joe's my friend. I'd like to be one with him. We have a kindred spirit. That's not to say I don't love that, but he, I like him. That's my friend. Then there's the love that identifies with marriage. Say, I love Joe, and I, hey, but my wife, I want to be one with her. All the time? Seven days a week. For one week? No. 52? Oh, a year? No, no, no. For the rest of my life. And marriage becomes oneness. And you get to be so identified with that person, they know what you're thinking before you say it. Wives are that way. Aren't they? (laughs) Sometimes you try to change the pattern just to fool them. Because, you know, you reach for this and they hand it to you. I didn't even ask for it. (laughs) But there's a deeper love than that. What's that? That's God's love and your love for God. Only when you're born again do you want to be one with him. Otherwise, you say like the demons, let us alone. That's what you say when you don't want Christ. Or when you're a teenager, let me alone. I want to do my own thing. But when you're saved, you don't want to be let alone, not by God. You want to live forever. Imagine how unhappy you would be and I would be if we were still unsaved and they took us to heaven. Oh, we couldn't stand it. Holy, holy, like this. Praise God, like this. And C.S. Lewis writes a book called The Great Divorce. That's a busload of people on their way to hell that got detoured and arrived in heaven. (laughs) Couldn't stand it. Just couldn't stand it. It's like the guy, the gambler that got on the wrong boat, thought he was going to the casino, and he got to the Sunday school picnic. (laughs) Couldn't stand it. (laughs) What a friend we have in here all day long. New commandment. Then next. I have not written unto you 1 John 2.21 because you know not the truth, but because you know. Oh, I missed four. Got to get back. In order that they may know the level of growth. Will you turn to First John 2, verse 12? I write unto you little children. He uses the word technia, which occurs many times in the book. It means born ones, little babies in Christ. And there is... Spirit, there is physical growth, 
from the baby to the child to the child to the youth to the youth to the teenager, the adolescent, the young adult, the older adult, the mature, the aged. And there, that's interesting. There are moral levels of growth, says Eric Erickson, psychological ages of growth. And I, I can agree with that in principle, where you learn as a baby trust versus mistrust. The baby who doesn't know but knows when it's loved. Uh, like this. Some babies get slapped when they cry and shut up and beat. So when you pick them up, they don't know what to expect. Well, then you go from trust to mistrust to autonomy versus shame. Youngster wants to be himself. He's got a little will of his own, and you have to sometimes teach him what shame is. Shame is not guilt. Shame is trying to achieve and failing, so you feel ashamed. You didn't dress the way they thought you should dress, so you look, but no guilt. Then he goes from that to initiative versus guilt. There's conflict in all of this, and I think he's right. The youngster now really asserts himself. He tells a joke and it's funny, or he says something funny. He tells it 20 times. <laughs> Stop it. Well, you laugh the first time. <laughs> or, or he takes initiative and sings, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know. And then it goes on and on. Jesus loves me, this I know. Here he is again. But then they get to that age of six where you take him to school. He learns industry versus inferiority. You put tools in his hand, he takes a pencil and a piece of paper, and he draws his picture, and he comes home and like this, and you look at it. Beautiful. <laughs> Want to change your name to John Rembrandt. He soon learns, however, that there are others who do better than he does in some areas. So he gets inferior. He did sing, Jesus loves me. Now he won't sing. Come on, John. You're like, like this. And then he gets to that place of, uh, we call it identity versus peer role confusion, says Mr. Erickson. Who am I? That's what the teenager says. He doesn't know. He knows what he's like amongst the locker room kids. <laughs> Goonie. And then he comes home and his mother says, I want you to meet my boy, John. He comes in. She says, isn't he a nice boy? Oh, you should see him in a locker room. Or when he gets his first car. <laughs> you say, my boy wouldn't drive like that. <laughs> he really doesn't know what he's expected to be by everybody. So he gets a little confused. Doesn't know what, he's going to go to school and hopes he gets through and go to another school and hopes he gets through and go to another school. Finally, he doesn't know what he's going to be. And then he gets to what we call intimacy versus isolation. He's finished college. He's been with the books. He's been with his peers. And now they dump him out into a world that's naked out there. And he's looking for intimacy. He's now the college career age. And he comes to church because he's neglected church while he's been in school. And now he comes and he hopes everybody comes and throws their arms around him. But see, he's reaping what he sowed. He didn't throw his arms around anybody for years. And now he comes home and says, I'm not going back there. Too cold. Boy, they don't care about anybody. 
Hey, you're in danger of isolation. And then you get to the age, he says, of generativity versus stagnation. What do you mean by generativity? And none of this is based on age. It's a psychological growth. Some of you are still in inferiority industries. But generativity is believing that what you have and what you believe and what you do is good for you and your kin and the next generation. So you generate like a generator. You produce. If you don't, you become stagnant. You don't do anything. And I'm a pastor of a church, and somebody said, oh, to a man who was a pastor, anybody work in your church? He said, we have 200 people that work and 200 people that like to see them work. That's the stagnant group. That's the spectators. That's the stagnant. When you say, forward march, they say, okay. Well, you finally get to the next two, or the last one, and that's uh, ego integrity, he calls it, versus despair. By ego, he means you, integrating yourself with everything in life or despairing committing suicide. That is to say, you look back, and I was born in Philadelphia in the wrong part of town. They called it Ramcat gangs, kid gangs, bad, poor, pulled out of school at ninth grade because it was depression and there was no money and my father was out of work and I got a job for $7 a week. Couldn't finish high school, wanted to go to Harvard, Yale, Pennsylvania, Ivy League, you know, couldn't do it, resented my parents, resented everything. And then you get saved and as you grow and mature, you say, hey, God had a purpose in that. You integrate with that. Moses in Egypt, backside of a desert. Hey, you see all of that and say, hey, the steps of a good man are finishing. Order of the Lord. God has a purpose. You say, but I don't like the way I look. Come on, he made you that way. Just accept it. If you looked real beautiful, you looked like you were run over by a truck. <laughs> if you looked real beautiful, maybe you'd be out there some tap room today. Hey knows what he's doing. He's an architect. And when you put that all together, then you say with Paul, who knew his identity, I am what I am. What? By the grace of God. I can't be Muhammad Ali. I can't fight like that. He can't preach like I preach. <laughs> so I am what I am. I heard some amens there. Uh. Hey, I write these things to you that you may know from technia. Notice the, well, you don't know the Greek words, but I'll tell you what they are. Verse 12, it's technia. Verse 13, little children, is the word paideon, word for child. That's a different age. You've known the father. And the word young man is neoniskoi. And the word father is patera, Peter. Hey, that's four levels of growth. The born-again child, the believer, then he's the child. Then he's the young man overcoming, learning to overcome. And then he's the father in the faith. He's met all these stages. And you've got to have fathers in the faith. You've got to have youth. You've got to have children. You've got to have babies. 
people that are being born again, which excites the family when you get a new baby, doesn't it? You know, the parents that have children and another one and another one. In fact, I went to a seminary that said, you really don't literally fulfill the scripture till you have four children. And I said, what deal is this? He said, well, it says be fruitful and what? And you can't multiply with a digit less than two. <laughs> one times one is one, <laughs> but two times two is four. So we've had four children. <laughs> and our dear brother has four daughters. <laughs> hope, hope, brother. I should tell him, he was saying his wife was gonna have a baby and he had three daughters. And I said, well, we had three girls and the last was a boy. He had great hope. Well, his last was a girl, so <laughs> I gotta say. I got in trouble once as a pastor. They had a number of boys and they were gonna have another baby and uh, it was a boy, it was another boy. And they wanted the baby dedicated and I didn't choose the hymns as God is my witness. I did not choose the hymns. <laughs> So they brought the baby, we had the dedication service, and I said, as Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so return to their seat, let's sing hymn number, and it was never give up. <laughs> Scouts of. He did not believe it when I said, Henry, I did not choose that hymn. <laughs> you notice this, 1 John 2.21, in order that they may know truth. Uh, Pilate asked the question, what is truth? What is truth? We call things truth in a relative sense. Hey, it's raining, we said yesterday. That's true yesterday. It's not true this morning. So that's relatively true. Identify with that situation. We talk about logical truth. In mathematics, abstract science, two and two is four. Well, two what and two what is four? Two cows and two apples? Well, it's four, but how do you explain that? And then there's what we call formal truth, historical truth, and that's depending on who writes the history. But when you talk about absolute truth, only God fits that. What's that? That's truth that's unchangeable, reliable, trustworthy. You can lean upon it. Can't lean upon the relative truth because it may, not, it may be sunshiny, not rainy. Can't lean upon formal truth because whoever wrote that. But you can lean upon God who says, I am truth. And Jesus said, I am truth. And his word is truth. Says first John, the reason I write this book is not because you don't know the truth, you know it. When you are born again, you know him and can lean upon him. I like uh, that verse in Isaiah that says, I will keep him in perfect what? Yeah. Whose mind is stayed upon thee because he trusteth in thee. And one day I looked up the word thing, or what's the word for perfect in the Hebrew? And I looked at the text. And there is no word for perfect. They simply say it twice. So what the text says is, I will keep him in shalom. Shalom. Peace, peace, because he, his mind is stayed upon thee. And the word means you lean upon him so much so, like this, that if you move the pulpit, I go down. Now, I'm not leaning on it now. 
Looks like I am, but you can put the pulpit away. <laughs> I'm not leaning. But when you cast your whole weight upon it, and it goes, you go. I will keep him in shalom, shalom, whose mind so leans upon me that if I move, he moves. Hey, you know that truth. Says the scripture, you shall know the truth, he said to those that believe in him, and the truth shall make you what? Remember in elementary school and the teacher puts something on the board and then they turn to see who's going to give the answer? And if you did not know it, I don't know what you did, I got a disease called the slinks. <laughs> you look for a girl with a lot of hair. <laughs> you really have no freedom. And then if you know, yeah, why? Because I'm free to tell. I know. Truth makes you free. The Christian is the... Really, the only one who can be unashamed of the gospel and stand in classroom and say, yeah, I'm a believer. I once went to a group, and they were agnostics, and they wanted me to present. And I came in and said, I'd like to introduce myself. I'm an agnostic. Oh, they said. I said, no, concerning your belief. <laughs> Not mine, yours. And that threw them a little creep there. And then verse 26 of chapter 2, these things I write unto you concerning them that seduce you. Now, seduction, we usually think in the terms of sensuality. The woman who catches the young man in the book of Proverbs and says, my husband's away for the weekend. Come, let us make love. And the writer says, her guests are the guests of hell. And she seduced him. Weaned him away, First John. Every man is tempted, that is, to sin when he is drawn away of his own lust. And then he's enticed. And then that lust conceives. And lo, the embryo and the fetus and the baby is born. And that brings forth death. And everybody's pregnant, in a sense, with something. Not a baby physically. It's something in our mind is beginning to form. And if it's truth, it will conceive and bring forth truth. And if it's sin, it will conceive and bring forth sin. Well, you go to some schools and they seduce you. They wean you away either by ridicule. Anybody in this fourth grade still believe in God? What's a fourth grader going to get up and say, yes, sir, I am. He, anybody believe that God made the heavens and the earth? You say, well, they, and you, bless your hearts, you little know what's written in the textbooks of your school and what's taught. Would you like to have a real atheist be your babysitter? Mind your children when they're seven and eight while you're away for four hours? Not an atheist. Would you like somebody who's a real sensual and thinks that there are no standards and that sex is free, would you like him to teach your youngsters when they're teenagers? That's what we do. We have abdicated. We have turned over our youngsters to a world and says, you train them. And they say, we would be delighted to train them. And then if you sit in a pastor's seat or anywhere else that sits and listens to problems, I tried to do my best. We were such a good home, and he used to 
recite Bible verses when he was 12 and 13 and now? Where did you train him? Not at home. You let him go. Now you cry. It's a little late. A little late. It's like having a car and not looking at it for 12 years. All of a sudden it breaks down. I don't understand it. I never lifted the hood, I know. <laughs> then the last one. In order that they may have assurance, 1 John 5, 13. That's a great text most of us have memorized. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Eternal life is not going to heaven. <laughs> Heaven's a place. And that's where I'm going. But that's not eternal life. Eternal life is not living for billions of years. No, eternal life is not quantitative. It's qualitative. The animal does not have what I have. What's that? Human life. He doesn't have it. Can't have it. The dog, he's a dog and he'll live like a dog. And I speak to him in words and I say, do you know that the Detroit Tigers play baseball in Detroit? And he goes, oh, he doesn't understand that. I say, come on, I'll say it again. They and he goes, How can I make him understand? I can't. He's a dog and I'm a human. If you think there's a gap between us, what about the gap between God and me? How do I understand his language? He thunders, I'm afraid. If he speaks, I say with Jacob, I'm dead. Ah, God says, what I'll do is give you my spirit. And then you can know me. And then you will say, Abba, Father. Hey, that's what it means to be born again. To know him. And then he says, because you're a baby, I have to wean you. I'll give you the milk of the word and the meat of the word and the honey out of the rock. And the more you read this, the more you'll understand me. Finally, you'll say with Psalm 63, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Not a dogma, not a creed, but a being who calls me his son. Isn't that great? John knew him. Says later on, man, we heard him and we touched him and our eyes saw him and we were beside ourselves with joy. That's 1 John. It's a little book. You ought to read it through again and again about 50 times. And then you say, now I'll begin to study it. And then you analyze it and underline the verses and pick out things that somebody else didn't pick out. And when you do it yourself, it becomes yours. It's like your own recipe. <laughs> Do you ever make your own recipe? A little of this, a little of that. And pretty soon you say, wow, wow. Didn't follow somebody else's. I added a little. I always do that with stuff. Add a little stuff. And you, <laughs> but now and again, you hit something. Then it becomes yours. Going to have a good day. Let's bow in prayer. Father, out of the book, give us wisdom, the prudent use of what we know. Help us not to be so logged with head knowledge that it doesn't touch our heart and obedience to you, which is better than sacrifice. Help us always to keep growing in his name. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of five messages George Slavin presented during Moody Week at Gold Lake Bible Conference 1978. 
George Slavin was a Bible teacher and expositor and former pastor of Highland Park Baptist Church in Southfield, Michigan. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.